We are talking once again with Maria Tomchik, local writer and activist, here to give us a wrap-up of this past week's news. Good morning. Good morning. All right. No job or today. Or good afternoon, depending on when you're listening. Who, who could say <laughs> when our listening? <laughs> no job today. That's, that's correct. Yeah. yeah you'll, you'll be back next week. We hope. <laughs> All right. But in the meantime... Things still happened. Yes. <laughs> so starting with uh, our Seattle City Council. Yeah, some uh, <clears throat> some meetings of committees in Seattle City Council. The uh, Sarah Nelson's Economic Development Technology and, and City Light Committee met early in the week to look at six bills related to the use of surveillance technology by the Seattle Police Department. Uh, the bills are included in a group called Group 4B of the existing technology that city departments are using that uh, can be termed surveillance technology. These six items are items that the Seattle Police Department are using. Now, historically, if you think back to 2017, I think it was, was when the city council uh, learned about surveillance technology that the Seattle Police Department was using and that they wanted to use and decided, wait, how come we're just hearing about this now? Mm-hmm. And w- was there any public process for considering the uh, civil rights and the uh, privacy issues surrounding the use of surveillance technology by the city government? by departments in the city government. And the answer to that question was no, there was no public consideration and no notification done before the police department adopted some of their technologies and other city departments. So the city council passed an ordinance saying, okay, we, we want all uh, technology that could be used for surveillance purposes to have uh, uh, surveillance impact reports done on them. And the department that wants to use that or is using that uh, technology needs to answer a series of questions about the technology. You know, what does it do? What kinds of data would it collect? When would it be deployed? Who would it be used on? What, you know, what data does it scoop up? How long do they keep it? What's the data used for? And of course, the big sort of elephant in the room question, which is what does the city do with data that's scooped up uh, on people who are not the target, intended target of the technology? So uh, that's what the surveillance impact report is meant to do. It's to me- meant to, to uh, answer some of those questions. And then, of course, there was supposed to be a public process, public hearings where further questions are brought up and answered. And then uh, ordinance is drafted and the city council reviews the surveillance impact report, asks questions, makes amendments to the ordinance and either approves or or votes it down. Okay. Now, there have been four other groups of technology that the city council has already reviewed in, I think, about the five years since that surveillance bill was passed. This is the fifth group. It's Group 4B. And interestingly enough, and I think Lisa Herbold pointed this out in the committee meeting this week, 
that uh, some of the most controversial technology has been left to the very end of the process. Mm. There are two more uh, two more items they're gonna they're gonna consider, but this is the big last big group of items. And uh, it includes the six technologies they're looking at are all deployed by the Seattle Police Department. They're existing technologies that the police department has been using. OK, and they include uh, concealed camera systems that are that take video only, no audio crash data retrieval tools. So in the in the uh, event of a car accident, tools that are used to retrieve data on the vehicles involved in the crash. Computer and cell phone data extraction tools, and that's exactly what it sounds like, pulling data off of computers and cell phones. Uh, remotely operated vehicles, which are those little uh, drone, land-based drones that, that SWAT teams use in the case of a hostage situation or a bomb situation. Tracking devices, and that's exactly what it sounds like. And then the department's use of a of a computer program called GeoTime, which analyzes and maps data over space and time throughout the city. Okay, I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about a couple of the more controversial of these these six items here today. Um, these, of, like I said, these are widely understood to be the most controversial technologies that the SPD are using, and uh, as uh, Herbold pointed out apparently saved for the end of the review process, although the representative for the police department who was at the meeting said, oh, no, that wasn't intentional. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, the six draft ordinances, as I said, contain surveillance impact reports. And you can go to the city council's website and look at the minutes for the Economic Development Technology and City Light Committee this past week. You can uh, drill down into the links in the minutes and it gives you the reports and uh, for these different these six different systems and the reports answer some questions about the technology but it also includes uh, the public feedback gathered through at least two public forums on each of these technologies and the major questions that uh, the public raised about them in the body of the reports which I found kind of interesting. The public feedback is in the form of these kind of useless word clouds. And I just want to say, I think word clouds are uh, one of the worst inventions I've ever, I've ever seen. And I was pretty astonished to see those in a kind of official surveillance uh, impact report. Um, but fortunately, there for each of the reports, there are at least a couple of appendices that contain the actual uh, public feedback, including letters from organizations like the ACLU, which pretty extensively analyzed these six technologies and spelled out some major questions and privacy concerns that they had. Now, uh, they were particularly concerned with GeoTime, which uh, their, the ACLU's letter says allows law enforcement to, quote, create correlations between, between large amounts of personal data for numerous sources at a time, including call detail records, mobile forensics data, GPS, location tracking data, and social media data, creating very detailed personalized maps of people's lives, end quote. It also uh, can analyze the activity of people related to a suspect who are not and should not be 
under investigation. Now, in addition, the ACLU points out that the geo that geo time allows police to link suspects with specific events and places like a mosque, an abortion clinic or the site of an anti-police violence rally. And geo time is currently being used by at least three detectives in the Seattle Police Department, with at least one who uses it regularly. Now, a separate letter by a group called Upturn, also include in, included in the uh, surveillance impact reports. Uh, Upturn is a nonprofit organization that promotes equity and justice in the design and use of technology. Uh, their letter cites statistics from their comprehensive report on law enforcement agencies' use of data extraction tools in the United States. So they were particularly concerned with the data, cell phone, and computer ex- uh, data extraction tools that the SPD is using. Mm-hmm. And they said over 2,000 law enforcement agencies use these tools to pull data from cell phones and computers throughout the U.S. in all 50 states. Usually it's done without a warrant, and almost none of these departments have policies governing how and when agencies can use these tools. They are extremely invasive, uh, given the amount of personal information that people now carry on their cell phones. And they're used as a matter of routine in most departments that have them. Okay. In addition, the Seattle Community Surveillance Working Group also sent a memo memo to the city council, which is included in the surveillance impact reports, with their concerns about the data extraction tools, echoing a lot of the same issues brought up by Upturn. Now, attending the committee meeting, of course, was Sarah Nelson, who is the chair, uh, Deborah Juarez, who is president of the city council, and Lisa Herbold. Two other members of the committee, Shama Sawant and Dan Strauss, were absent. Uh, the bills were discussed this week with the plan that the committee members would propose amendments over the next two weeks, would scramble to draft and propose these amendments, and then would discuss them in two weeks' time on February 22nd, which is when they were planning to vote on these, although I imagine with the... Uh, with the complexity of these six technologies, it might go a month before they actually vote. Mm-hmm. Now, Lisa Herbold asks some really good questions, including does the SPD collect any data on how these technologies are used and if they're being used according to state laws and the SPD policies that the SPD says that they have to follow when they use these data collection and extraction tools. Now, the concealed cameras for example, are only supposed to be used when the police have a search warrant or the suspect is given consent to a search. And the police representative repeated this multiple times for each of the data extraction tools. We follow state laws. We have specific policies. We only use them when we have a warrant or the suspect gives consent. But here's the deal. Uh, Lisa Herbold asked this, and I'm um, adding in there some of my adding into this some of my own concerns. She wanted to know if the suspects are informed of the existence of a concealed camera, and if they can. And my response is, can they actually knowingly give consent or revoke consent for a quote unquote concealed camera? Mm-hmm. I mean, come on, it's not concealed if you if you disclose its existence, right? And uh, it appeared to me that the police representative was saying, oh, no, we tell them, you know, we get their consent to do a search. And so then we just assume that they've given consent for the concealed camera. That's essentially what he was saying, I think. Now, uh, 
the uh, police rep also said that the Office of the Inspector General could at any time audit the use of these technologies and uh, that they would need to propose metrics, but apparently haven't proposed any metrics to the Seattle Police Department for measuring whether or not they're using them according to policy and state law. And Herbold responded that her understanding is that the Seattle Police Department should be proposing metrics and moving forward with this, not waiting for the Office of Inspector General to come up with something, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I think it points to uh, an amendment that Herbold is going to be proposing <laughs> for for these ordinances. Now, uh, the police rep responded that uh, the SPD is certainly ready to work with the council on coming up with a set of metrics. So I think that is definitely going to be something in the works between now and the next meeting of this committee. Now, in terms of consent, the police rep just talked about a suspect's right to revoke consent in general. So he didn't really address the issue of whether suspects are informed that they're being recorded by a concealed camera or if they specifically can uh, request that that recording not be done. Okay. Now, Herbold was also interested in the internal controls that would limit access to the content taken from people's cell phones in the data extraction category. Now, all the police rep said is that information extracted from the phone from a cell phone is used for law enforcement purposes. Uh, it could be limited by the judge when a warrant is issued, but otherwise the data is handled according to SPD policies. And that's all he would say. Okay. Wow. Now remember what you carry. Think about what you carry on your cell phone, all your social media act. For most people, it's like all their social media activity, personal phone calls, all of your text messages some of which could be taken very much out of context if if uh if the police for example don't know your relationship to a person that you're texting, you know, joking text messages back and forth mm-hmm. with uh your your GPS data, history of of where you've been. You know, there's just you know photographs, personal photographs, all c- kinds of things that can be extracted from a person's cell phone. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a- friggin treasure chest basically for or the police like, yeah yeah oh yeah now geotime does now now the police rep emphasized that geotime doesn't actually collect data but it compiles and analyzes data that's input by detectives they have to input it manually some of that data is gathered under a search warrant okay but not all of it some of it is not, like data taken from a police report or from a 911 call. Uh, when asked if SPD enters social media information, and this was asked by a, a member of, of the city council's central staff, not by, not by Lisa Herbold. It was asked by Lisa Kay. Um, she asked if SPD enters social media information. The police rep said that SPD doesn't use any social media crawler software to grab masses of social media data, but SPD detectives do gather publicly available social media posts and other data from suspects' social media accounts, and they do enter it into GeoTime. Mm-hmm. So there's the answer. The answer is yes, they do. Uh, they do enter social media information. As for as for how long they retain data, 
the state mandates a minimum time to keep data. Okay, And the Seattle Police Department also has minimum data retention policies, but they can retain data for longer, and they often do, especially if they think that data might be needed for uh, for appeals of cases after they've been prosecuted for uh, or if the information might be needed for internal investigations, for example. Mm-hmm. So data can be held for years after a case is prosecuted. Uh, so, and and it doesn't address you know a major problem, which is that these different agencies going all the way up the tree to the uh, the federal tree regularly share data and information yeah. with each other, and, including yeah. third party um, you know for profit corporations. Yeah, see, that was one of the issues. That was one of the issues that was brought up by the ACLU and and members of the public. It's like, are you sure the vendors don't have access to this? And the SPD rep said over and over again that no, these are tools that are installed. These are software packages that are that are installed on internal systems, internal computers in the Seattle Police Department. GeoTime doesn't save any data inside it. It just spits out a report that we then put in a case file. You know, we put it on a little USB drive. We give it to the detective in the case and it becomes part of the case file. It's never seen by outside vendors. And that's great. But we know that the Seattle Police Department does have these cooperation agreements in place with other law enforcement agencies. And the particularly the use of of things like crash data or the use of the kind of remote, uh, little remote vehicles and, and various other tools that can be used in these really complex cases, particularly like drug cases or homicides with, for example, some question of whether this person might be a serial killer or not. These things can be shared with other outside agencies. And the police rep was literally saying, you know, we're going to resist any any effort to try and put limits around our ability to engage in data sharing if we think it's necessary to solve to solve a case. So, yeah, and, you know, your cell phone data could be not just held at the SPD. It could be could be shared essentially, even though the even though the police rep was sitting there saying, oh, no, it's all in house, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, us both having worked in I.T., I think we both know that. That's yeah. That once 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 somebody has the data. Yeah. I w- had all of these questions about what are your internal controls? And the SPD rep did not answer to my satisfaction any of what I think are really super important questions about whether the data is encrypted, who else at SPD might have access to it, what are their data sharing agree do they have actual data sharing agreements that are separate from their from their uh agreements that they have in place to work with other agencies, you know, who reviews those, uh what kind of data has already been shared. And once they share that data, do they maintain any kind of control over when that data gets destroyed? You know, there are all these questions I had as an IT person that uh, were not sufficiently answered by the surveillance intelligence report and by this hearing. So I think those are those are things that uh, the city council needs to be asking and to be looking at. 
so that was just one uh, committee uh-huh. that met this week. Another another uh, committee that met was Tammy Morales's, uh, excuse me, Neighborhoods Committee. They heard a presentation on transportation and the disconnectedness of neighborhoods in Seattle. The most telling part of the presentation was the map showing protected bike lanes in Seattle, most of which are clustered in the downtown and the U District to Green Lake area. The very few blocks of protected bike lanes elsewhere in the city are isolated and don't really connect to each other or to downtown. And in District 2 in particular, southeast Seattle, there are only four miles of bike lanes protected only by paint. None of them are really fully protected by barriers, so you can't really consider them protected bike lanes in that case, in my opinion. Now, of 34 traffic fatalities in 2022 citywide, 20 of them, or 59%, were people walking or biking, kind of showing you the, the lethal nature of not being protected by, you know, tons of steel mm-hmm. when you drive in a car. 56% of those deaths happened in District 2. Think about that. District 2 is wow. only one corner of the city. And it had well over half of the deaths of people who were walking or biking. So Tammy Morales really is trying to pursue an issue that is very, very important, which is the safety of people in her council district and the ability for those folks to for their kids to walk to school, for their elders to get to the grocery store, for people to get out of their cars and, and safely ride their bikes and exercise it's just uh, something that that has to be uh, fixed by the city. City needs to do better in terms of neighborhood transportation safety. Also this week, uh, Councilmember Lisa Herbold announced that the Seattle Police Department has released the crime report for 2022. Her public safety committee is going to discuss it this coming week, Tuesday, February 14th, when her, when it next meets. But she linked to a copy of the report in her city council blog and uh, uh, the slides for the report show some interesting statistics. They show a 4% increase in crime over 2021 with a 24% increase in homicides, which means there were 10 more murders in Seattle than in 2021. Rape is up 4% with 11 more in Seattle than in 2021. And aggravated assaults are up 5% with 172 more than there were in 2021. Property crimes, however, show some interesting trends. Arsons are down 19% with 43 fewer. Burglaries are down 12% with 1,169 fewer in 2022. And that's the good news. The bad news is that larceny thefts are up 5% with 1,252 more than in 2021. And motor vehicle thefts are up a whopping 30% with 1,596 more than in 2021. So what this shows us is that for violent crime, even though homicides get really drive the headlines, it's aggravated assault that makes up the biggest increase. Okay. And motor vehicle thefts for property crimes, even though, you know, people are, are made to, to be frightened in their home, own homes thinking that they're going to be burglarized. It's actually motor vehicle thefts that make up the far largest increase in property crimes. And when you look at the curve of crime 
over the past 15 years in the city of Seattle, there's a big jump in crime for 2021 that appears to now be leveling out and perhaps falling year over year. The uh, by-month statistics for 2022 really show that. When you look at the by-month statistics, you see that crime peaked in the summer months and has been gradually falling since July. And that's also, I think, really good news. And there's going to be some interesting discussions, I'm sure, about the crime report <laughs> next week in the Public Safety Committee. And uh, I'll be watching the videos for that and uh, talking about those next week. That uh, committee meeting, if you want to see it live, you can go to the you can either go to City Hall or you can go to the Seattle City Council's website. The meeting starts at 930 a.m. on February 14th. And just a reminder, something else is happening on the 14th, too. Mm -hmm. I just want to give people a reminder to vote your ballots on I-135 to create a new public development authority called the Seattle Social Housing Developer to build public housing in Seattle that will serve a mix of income levels. Ballots are due on Tuesday, February 14th, so mark them now and put them in the mail or put them in a drop box near you as soon as possible to make sure that your ballot gets in and gets counted. So just um, a few minutes left. Can you uh, touch on some of the legislation? That's yeah, there were the uh, lots of lots of bills passing the House and the Senate in uh, Olympia, our, our Washington state legislature. There were four interesting bills that passed one of the two chambers this week, two in the House and two in the Senate. I just want to mention those, these pretty quickly. Engrossed substitute House bill. 1042 would prevent cities from imposing restrictions and requirements on new housing units created within existing buildings in areas zoned for multifamily housing. This passed the House unanimously. It's meant to uh, prevent neighborhoods from putting restrictions on and design, particularly in the design review process, saying that existing buildings have to be that developers have to spend a ton of money to change the outside look of a building if it's if they're going to turn it from being a commercial building or some other kind of building like a like a warehouse building or a store into multifamily housing. Now, uh, the second bill that passed the House was substitute House Bill 1234 would allow law enforcement or animal control officers to enter private property without a warrant to rescue an animal if there's probable cause that an animal's welfare is in danger or that it needs immediate medical attention. The owner would be required to post a bond to cover the animal's care, and if they fail to do so, they would lose their ownership right. Uh, the bill also provides a means for former owners to sue for the return of the animal, and it clarifies the court process in that case um, to make it a little bit clearer on what what uh, the rights of the owners are versus the uh, rights of the the rights of the animal to be taken care of and to to get immediate medical attention if it's needed. So that's a that's a, an interesting bill, and I think a great bill for animal welfare. Also passing the Senate was engrossed substitute Senate Bill 5082 would repeal the Tim Eyman initiative that requires all tax increases by the state to be subject to advisory votes. It would also set up an information website 
where Washington residents can see state budgets, expenditures, and other important financial information at the state level in Washington. That passed the Senate on Wednesday and has already been taken up by the House Government and Tribal Relations Committee. So I think there's a very good chance that that could be passed and we may not see any more of those kind of time-wasting advisory advisory votes that really have no bearing on whether any of those tax increases actually go into effect. Interesting. And one more bill of the Senate Joint Memorial 8001 would request that the U.S. Congress pass and the president sign the National Infrastructure Bank Act or similar legislation. Now, that act would establish the National Infrastructure Bank as a government corporation exempt from tax to which people can make deductible charitable contributions. It could also take deposit accounts, so customers could open a deposit account and the bank would pay them interest. So essentially, they'd be loaning their money to the bank and the bank could then fund transportation, telecommunications, energy, environmental and community development projects. This advisory bill uh, also passed the Senate on Wednesday and has been taken up by the House Consumer Protection and Business Community already. So my guess is it will probably pass the House as well. So Friday, February 17th is the first cutoff date in this year's Washington State Legislative Session. It's the last day to pass bills out of committee in their House of Origin, except for the budget bills, which get an additional week in committee. So if you're interested in reading some of the bills or watching some of the videos of committee meetings, you can visit the legislature's website at leg.wa.gov. <laughs> And videos are also posted and archived on the TVW website.